I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly on this episode. Autumn and I are going to catch up, talk about the president coming to Oklahoma on Saturday, and then we're going to do, in our deeper dive, we're going to talk a little bit about the remembering of Juneteenth on June 19th, the release date of this podcast, as well as how that fits in the context of the Black Lives Movement across the globe in this particular era. And then our interview section, we've got a very special guest with us, the Reverend Jack Glasgow from Zebulon Baptist Church in North Carolina. He has a new book that has just been released by Nurturing Faith entitled Seeing with Jesus. And it is an extraordinary interview you won't want to miss. Autumn, how are you doing this week? We are doing well. It's, you know, how long is this now? Three months, I think, since we started this whole COVID stay at your house to flatten the curve situation. Our state has opened back up. The curve is no longer flat. Um, but personally, we're doing fine. How are y'all? We're doing well. Uh, you know, we're into Q2 of uh, quarantine, uh, second part of uh, or entering into the fourth month, obviously. Um, you know, it's it's going okay. I think uh, the walls continue to press in just a little bit. I've got two college-age kids uh, back at the house, uh, one who just graduated, ready to fly, and his wings have been clipped because of this pandemic. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a little, it's a little difficult, I'm uh, going to be honest with you, but uh, we're doing okay. I mean, we began to realize, we have a lot of conversations that you know, this just isn't affecting our family. It is uh, affecting the entire world. It certainly could be a whole lot worse for our family as people who are battling uh, the disease, who are dying from the disease, who are facing economic disasters because of the disease. Uh, and so, you know, when we put it into those perspectives, we're doing really, really well. But speaking of catastrophes due to the pandemic, We've got a catastrophe uh, potentially unfolding here in Oklahoma. President Donald J. Trump is coming to Tulsa, Oklahoma this particular Saturday uh, for his first rally post-pandemic. And it's a little bit scary. Not really. Yeah. Not really post. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's not post. It's exactly right. Maybe that's how they're, they're framing it. Yeah. Uh, but we had talked about, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about covering the event. Uh, you know, we uh, obviously, uh, you can see the video, we marched uh, alongside a Black Lives Matter rally here in Norman, uh, wore the appropriate uh, face mask, uh, practiced social distancing as you can during a march when we interviewed people. Uh, we had a boom mic uh, to try to, to keep several feet apart from our, our guest. Uh and so we discussed the possibility of uh, covering uh, the Trump rally in Tulsa, but we decided that that wasn't a good idea. Um, we've been hearing a lot of calls out of Tulsa from very prominent people saying that this is not this is not a good idea. No, it's not. That's what the health officials are saying. That's what the community leaders are saying. Um, unfortunately, our governor sort of bypassed all kinds of you know, direction from the local authorities and decided that this would be a good idea. 
Yeah, this is uh, the same governor, Governor Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma, who, when the pandemic was beginning to ramp up initially, was posting uh, photos of him and his family out in restaurants, kind of just uh, poking fun at the the virus and the spread of the virus, saying that uh, almost alluding through his social media uh, uh, post that this was nothing to be concerned about. And, of course, now, uh, according to the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, uh, Oklahoma is certainly on the rise in the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, it is. And, you know, layer into that, the racial powder keg that we're experiencing right now, the historic um, kind of background of this date, um, of this time in Tulsa, and it's it's really sort of there's a drumbeat and I'm a little bit nervous about Saturday. Yeah, all of the ingredients are there for something, uh, and it's not just something; it is a multiple uh, somethings that could unfold on Saturday. The uh, the the tensions that uh, our country is facing right now uh, in regards to police brutality and racial justice are certainly prevalent on everybody's mind. And you're going to have a fabric of society descending up on Tulsa um, that is uh, that think uh, white privilege does not exist, that there, that equality has been achieved some miraculous way overnight. Uh, and, and it's, it's it, and you're going to have prote- protesters there who, you know, are demanding justice. Uh, Tulsa certainly has had their um, Tulsa's certainly had their uh, fair share of incidents uh, historically and recently regarding uh, brutality and the oppression and massacre of African American community. We just memorialized our 99th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. And we've talked about this on the podcast. Um, and then, you know, we've had shootings here in Tulsa. A video surfaced uh, just weeks ago of two young African-American males walking down what looked like a deserted street and two police officers tackle and wrestle one of the uh, youth to the ground and arrested him just for what he said was jaywalking, which was ridiculous. Uh, and it was just, you know, just, just, it's shameful. And so it is a powder keg. You mentioned the, you mentioned the word powder keg, and it certainly is uh, possible that there could be some clashes on Saturday. Uh, violence could be, uh, there's a potential for violence. We all pray and hope that that's not the case, but there are local, uh, local businesses, businesses such as Quick Trip Incorporated who've already announced that they are shutting down all of their downtown stores because they're concerned for uh, the safety and health of their employees. So you have that element of the situation where it is a powder keg for potential violence. And then also you have the long-term effects of gathering thousands of people in an auditorium, most likely uh, not wearing masks. There are going to be masks provided, but it's not going to be required. And the president has already done what? Oh, yeah, he's already said he's not wearing one. He's not going to wear one, but he's also asking people to uh, sign or agree to the terms oh, yeah. that if they contract COVID-19, that they cannot sue him or the campaign. So 
it's it's the hypocrisy at its its uh, high highest Apex. levels. <laughs> That's exactly mm-hmm. right. That this is nothing to worry about. But here, I'm going to slide this uh, uh, waiver in front of you to sign, just in case. You know, I mean, in case this big liberal hoax is is there's something to it. So it's well, it's I, just a powder keg. I keep hearing people talk about because I, I try to leave my social media feed pretty open so that I can hear both sides. I, you know, sometimes I have to mute people for a bit when it gets a little too out there on either side. Um, but I'm hearing people say things like, well, why was it okay for you for people to march, but we can't get together for a rally or things like that. And the difference is every single person I saw at the march had a mask on. Yeah. And they're outdoors. While, while this other population of folks who are gathering together for this rally are thumbing their nose at the best health practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, and no one's, no one's going to die if you don't have a Trump rally, but people 1000% are going to die if we don't keep marching. That's exactly right. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're assuming the president's going to come. Uh, you know, Governor Stitt's already invited him to tour uh, the, G- the Greenwood district uh, there in Tulsa, where the 21 uh, race massacre took place. Um, it's just, uh, it is the ingredients for uh, a lot of potential uh, strife and violence to occur this Saturday in Tulsa. We are praying that that does not happen, that cooler heads avail. Uh, of course, the one head that we need to be praying for more than any that could put a stop to this would be the president himself. But he mm-hmm. has shown uh, no sign of letting up, no sign of thinking there's anything wrong with this, that he has any responsibility to protect the American people or to show any kind of concern regarding what this is going to look like uh, to our African-American brothers and sisters. So uh, pray. Uh, This uh, this podcast is going to be released on Friday. Pray tonight that somehow, someway, he comes to his senses and cancels the event on Saturday. If not, pray that uh, it could be a peaceful event and that people would be protected from the spread of the virus. But the likelihood of that is diminishing as the clock ticks. Mm-hmm. Well, in our next segment, uh, we're going to talk a little bit, uh, take a deeper dive into uh, racial justice, talk a little bit about the history of Juneteenth and why our African-American community is speaking with such passion and with forceful voices when it comes to police brutality and the uh, denouncing of systemic racism in such a direct and passionate way. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And in this episode's Deeper Dive, we're going to talk about the history of Juneteenth, as well as why so many of our African-American brothers and sisters are speaking passionately and demonstrative about denouncing racial uh, profiling, police brutality, and demanding that racial justice be enacted in this country. This is Friday, June the 19th, uh, when this uh, podcast was dropped. I released an article uh, on Thursday, June 18th, entitled the prophetic echoes of Juneteenth. Now, before we kind of start our conversation about this, you know, a lot of people don't know what Juneteenth is in our country. 
Uh, Juneteenth uh, recognizes the date in which Major General Gordon Granger of the Union Army read aloud what is historically known as General Orders Number 3 that announced to the 250,000 slaves remaining in Texas that President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, the end of the Civil War, and the passage of the 13th Amendment. But that was two and a half years ago. And the slaves in Texas were just now finding out that as far as, 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 far as being legally free, that they were indeed legally free. I mean, Autumn, can you imagine hearing that news? I mean, there's a little bit of euphoria that, oh my gosh, we're we're free. But then you begin to think about it for a moment. I've been free for two and a half years and nobody said anything? Yeah. No, it's it's shocking and not at all surprising at all at the same time. Yeah. And so I I take this, this moment in history in which we commemorate uh, the, and it is both a celebration, but it is a celebration through tears of this proclamation that was announced in Texas. So I, I use that as a, in the article, and you, and you can read it at ethicsdaily.com. Um, I use it as a jumping off point to talk about, uh, from a, a 30,000 view, uh, regarding the, the black struggle and the frustration and infuriation that they have with systemic racism in this country. So think about this for just a moment. So for you know several hundred years, your race, if you are a black person in this country, have been suffering under the oppression of slavery. And that's all across the country, north and south, but in particularly the south. And then all of a sudden, you are told that you are free. I mean, what better news could anybody hear who has endured that kind of horror over 200 years? But then think about this historically. After the Emancipation Proclamation, after the 13th Amendment, after the defeat of the Confederacy, another form of slavery began to emerge. Instead of reparations, we get Jim Crow. You get Jim Crow. And for over a decade, Jim Crow rules the South. Mm-hmm. And as we were talking to our resident historian here at uh, Good Faith Media, uh, Dr. Bruce Gorley, uh, who is actually an expert in Civil War history, you know, he was identifying for us that... You know, what happened after the Civil War is that all these Confederate soldiers and these Confederate veterans, you know, returned home uh, after their defeat. And, you know, we're talking about the bringing down of statues and which is very appropriate and just ridiculous that we have statues of traitors uh, that we uh, memorialize here in this country. But on a more... uh, on a more tangible basis and a more local basis, these Confederate soldiers moved into law enforcement, moved into the judiciary, moved into uh, the judicial system as prosecutors. 
and so and those 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 beliefs didn't go away, and and so in the enactment of Jim Crow, they made certain that if indeed the federal government was going to allow Black Americans to be free, that in their local municipalities and in their states, while they may be technically free, they were still going to be enslaved by the systems of the law and the systems of the institutions that black people lived under, in particular in the South. And so, you know, there's a a running uh, line I use in the piece that suggests that freedom without being free is still slavery. And so Jim Crow, in my opinion, is just another uh, form of slavery that was trying to, that was enacted upon a, uh, was enacted by a white ruling class upon uh, black Americans in this country. And, and so we've got a, a decade of that, or not a decade, we've got a century of that that uh, unfolds. And then that brings us to the 1950s and 1960s and the civil rights movement. It seemed like we were at a, a, a point of true progress, a, a true watershed moment with the marches taking place across this country, the demand of uh, segregation ending uh, and integration taking its place. We had, of course, the, the historic pieces of legislation that were passed in 64, the Civil Rights Act, the Voters' Rights Act in 1965. And it seemed like, uh, as Dr. King suggested, that uh, the world was standing on that mountaintop, as he recalled um, the Moses imagery, waiting to walk into the promised land of, of equality for all Americans. And it never happened. No. Because what happens immediately after 64 and 65 1970 rolls around, and under the administration of President Richard Nixon, all of a sudden there's a uh, emphasis on what is termed law and order, mm-hmm. which is really that's just am- familiar to our audience today. <laughs> that's exactly right, and so this law and order uh, motif ushers in what is the era of mass incarceration and and then a complete breakdown of the justice system. Uh, and it's the epitome of systemic racism in the United States. From 1970 to 2019, our prison population has grown from, has grown over 700% in this country. And not only is that public prisons, but you add in to the equation private uh, prisons, there is no incentive of rehabilitation in this country. It is all about incarceration. And predominantly, our prisons are populated with our black and brown citizens. It is just mesmerizing that we have allowed this to transpire here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's just heartbreaking. And it's just, and hear me when I say this, I want to be very clear. While this was ushered in under Republican administration in 1970, it has also been perpetuated by both parties. One of the most striking pieces of legislation that ramped up 
mass incarceration was under the Clinton administration uh, and the crime bill that was passed during their administration, the three strikes and you're out laws that mm-hmm. took effect. Uh, this is a blatant, uh, a blatant example of how systemic racism has not only allowed to fly under the radar, but it has been in our midst all along and white people just can't see it. Mm-mm. And the reality is, and won't see it. Can't just won't. Yeah, they will. And that that's a, a good, uh, a good way of saying that is not that they can't see it. They won't see it. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, and I go back to that statement, freedom without being free is still slavery. And we go back, we come full circle, and there's this wonderful documentary on Netflix by Ava Dervaini uh, entitled 13th. And there's the clause in the 13th Amendment that outlaws slavery unless of, in, of people being incarcerated. And so what we are seeing here in the modern day is a re-enslavement of our black predominantly black uh, citizens, but also our brown citizens. And again, freedom without being free is still slavery. So, you know, we've gotten some pushback this week at Ethics Daily about uh, an article that ran this week by Judge Wendell Griffin, who's been a guest on our pod, mm-hmm. talking about the, the passion in which our black Americans are speaking out and there's probably no better way to put it a disgust that some white citizens are now just opening their eyes to the injustices that the black community has faced, not just recently, not just since George Floyd died, but since the beginning of this country, why are they just now coming to grips with this? Yeah. I I mean, and I, I own that, you know, I think I I read someone posted a very vulnerable comment on Facebook about how as a white person, there is some safety right now in coming out against systemic racism and trying to be an anti-racist because there's actually a drumbeat that we're all coming together you're not a lone voice you know when you and I went to um, Atlanta to meet with Johnny uh, we went to Ebenezer Baptist Church and we walked around and that was I think you guys had been there before I had it that was my first time and I was really surprised by some of the pictures that we saw down in the basement where they used to have church um, of there were a significant number of white faces walking with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that's not a story that I'd heard before. And honestly, it was that moment. When was that? Was it February that we were there? February, 2020. Yeah. Um, Feeling really convicted that I needed to do more and really felt like in joining with good faith media, that it was a way that I could, but it's, it's not enough. And it's something that I should have been louder and more active in, you know, for always because of the reasons that judge Griffin points out in his article. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't blame the, the black community uh, who says we appreciate our white brothers and sisters saying the words black lives matter 
or mm-hmm. sharing content on social media. But don't, don't think we are unappreciative when we accept this with a hesitancy. Mm-hmm. Because we've been told this story before. Yeah. We've been made promises before. And when it becomes untrendy or when it becomes difficult, when it means mm-hmm. that somebody of uh, white descent has to sacrifice something or give something up, then all mm-hmm. of a sudden the story always changes. And in the end, our black brothers and sisters end up enslaved again in a whole new way, whether mm-hmm. that is Jim Crow, whether that's mass incarceration. They end up with the promise of freedom, but not really free. Mm-hmm. So I don't blame them one bit for being skeptical of no. this movement. They're hopeful. Or for being frustrated for it taking so long. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so our hope and prayer, obviously, is that this is a finally a watershed moment, a hinge moment in which true racial justice can be elevated, not only in this country, but around the world. And in the words of Dr. King, that even though we stand at this mountaintop, that just maybe, just maybe, as we marched up the mountaintop, we can now march down it, entering into the promised land of equality for all of God's children. Stay tuned for our interview with Jack Glasgow. Are you worried that COVID-19 is going to put off your plans for theological education? The Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is offering a full schedule online this fall. Our approach to online education is unique, offering classes live and face-to-face via Zoom. At BSK, relationship is critical, and we are thrilled to be able to offer our Master of Divinity, Pastoral Care Certificate, and Rural Ministry Certificate this way. Learn more at bsk.edu. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. We're excited to have a very special guest with us on this episode, Reverend Jack Glasgow from Zebulon Baptist Church in Zebulon, North Carolina. Jack has just released a new book entitled Seeing with Jesus. Jack, welcome to the podcast this week. Thank you, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we've asked uh, all of our guests uh, in the light of this pandemic and what's going on in the world uh, over the last few weeks, but uh, mainly uh, want to make certain that you're healthy. You and your family doing okay? We certainly are. Very blessed. Good. Good, good, Has good. your area been very hard hit? Not too much. Uh, I do think North Carolina shut down quickly, and so in the early days of the pandemic, our numbers were really low. Uh, we're beginning to open up a little more, and we're seeing the numbers creep up, but uh, it has not been terribly hard hit for us. Great news. Good, good. Well, we want to jump right into the book because it is so good. Love the title, Seeing Jesus. And uh, for those of you who are interested in it, you can pick up your copy at nurturingfaith.net or Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But we would recommend you pick it up at nurturingfaith.net. Now, Jack, the, the title, Seeing with Jesus, it certainly seems self-evident that all Christians should see the world through the eyes of Jesus. But let's just be honest, that can be challenging at times for people of faith. So let's just begin with more of a broad question. Why did you feel compelled to write the book? 
Well, I was uh, wanted to write the book primarily because of recognizing how many people use the term biblical worldview, Christian worldview, often to support their own political and, and social views. And then you listen to what they espouse, and it often has very little to do with what was revealed of Christ in the Gospels. And certainly being a part of nurturing faith and, and the emphasis on of Jesus' worldview, uh, I wanted to produce a resource that Christians could use, congregations could use, so that we really did say, let's let the Gospels shape our understanding of how Jesus viewed the world. Excellent. Excellent. Love that. Absolutely. So the theology of seeing is really intriguing. A lot of times we go through our life uh, observing, but how do we truly see other people's situations? Um, not We don't do it very often. So can you explain a little bit um, the difference between observing the world and seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus? Well, for me, it was really about vision. Uh, I think it's easy to use words to describe, you know, this is what I believe, this is what I think. But I wanted us to dig a little bit deeper and say, how did Jesus envision the world, the world that he encountered in the first century, but then maybe the world uh, that that could apply to the 21st century, uh, how Jesus viewed people, how Jesus viewed God, how Jesus viewed uh, certain important issues, what were the primary emphases uh, that Jesus had. So you wanted us to say, how can we learn to see the world something akin to the way Jesus saw the world and, and the vision that he had? Mm-hmm. Jack, would you say it's almost as though, you know, especially the way the New Testament describes Jesus, his encounters, his his lessons, his teachings, but even more so how he practiced his own personal faith, is that he saw the reality of the world and the injustices and the oppression and the marginalization, but he saw it not only with a reality, but with a hope for what it could be. Well, I think that's a, a great point, Mitch, that I think Jesus came to the to this world with a strong, compelling vision, and the term most often used for it was the kingdom of God. Uh, he really saw the world not only as it was, but as it was meant to be, and the kingdom of God was that place. It was a place of love. It was a place of justice. It was a place of kindness. It was a, a world that resonated with the vision of the prophets of the Old Testament. And I think that, that that was the primary vision of Jesus, was to come and announce the kingdom of God is at hand and it's present. And it's capable of us realizing if we can see the world as God would have us to see it. You know, we're going to uh, jump into the book here in just a second and, and look at some of the quotes uh, that we lifted from the book, which was excellent again. Uh, but what you just described, this this idea of, of seeing but also hoping, uh, and this, this idea of kingdom theology uh, and the hope of, of God's rule, not only in our lives, but uh, the rule of God's justice in this world, in light of what is been taking place over the last couple of weeks since the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota and all of the marches and rallies that have sprung up not only across the country, but now across the world. Do you think that people are beginning to see in a different way, maybe not necessarily with the eyes of Jesus yet, but the scales are falling off their eyes to see the ingrained and systemic issues 
of racism bigot and bigotry in our world? Oh, I certainly hope so. I, I certainly hope that that's part of what's going on because it seems to me that uh, so many people have used what they would call a biblical or Christian worldview as a way to condemn others, a way to exclude others. And when you look at the teaching of Scripture, and in particular the Gospels and the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the practice of Jesus, one of the things that I've said in my ministry repeatedly is you, I can't find a single place where Scripture or Jesus gives me permission to hate anyone, permission to exclude anyone, uh, permission to treat anyone unjustly. And I think for, for me, uh, the modern church has erred in believing that what the world is waiting for is for us to declare which things are moral and ethical and right and which things are wrong and sinful. It seems to me that's more the Pharisees' world. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They were the ones who were excellent at pronouncing judgment on what is permissible and what is impermissible, who's clean and who's unclean. And that was not the way Jesus viewed the world. Um, and he called us to love everyone. And so I've always focused on uh, encouraging Christians to be less about announcing for the world our views on, on morality and ethics, especially if we use that to be exclusive or to condemn others or to judge others. And instead, just follow the teaching of Jesus, and that is you love everyone and you care for everyone and you treat everyone with justice and kindness. I hope that that's a movement that we can see uh, really begin to take root and multiply in our world today. Yeah, and I mean, what you're saying is exactly right, because I mean, it, it seems as though people are seen with some intentionality about them now. You know, it's one thing, and, and maybe you know, Autumn's question uh, spoke brilliantly to this about the difference between observing and seeing, uh, that for so long, you know, as people of faith, we observe things and we make declarations such as uh, racism is wrong. Um, yeah, of course, we should love everybody. You know, I said a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, on the pod that, you know, Jesus did not get crucified because he told t- told everyone to love each other. He got crucified because he actually did it. He, right. he, had, he saw with this intentionality of acting, which goes beyond just mere observing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And one of the things that I think we have to recognize about the world in which we live Uh, And those of us on social media see it every day. No matter what event we observe, there's going to be different interpretations of the truth. Uh, And everyone has their own truth and everyone believes their own favorite sources. And as generally speaking, our human nature is to trust the sources that reinforce our thinking as it is. I think in that world in which we live, where we see these competing narratives describing the same events we observe, but in such different ways. I think if we as Christians can make a commitment to try and see things more from a Jesus perspective, a Jesus worldview, and to really try to ask ourselves the question, based on what we know about Christ from the Gospels, how do we believe Jesus would be seeing the events like we've watched in Minneapolis, in the protests, the things we've seen in the pandemic, um, we, we need to be sensitive uh, to trying to, to see the world as we believe Jesus would see it. Yeah, well said, well said.
Absolutely. And, and kind of speaking in that same vein, uh, in the book, you write about seeing the suffering Jesus, um, which is an image that as Christians, I feel like we are really prone to think we identify with the suffering Christ. Yes. Um, and Starlet Thomas, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, talked about how can we identify with the suffering Christ? We can't identify with our suffering brothers and sisters um, when we see them as the other. That's yeah. well said. Yes. Well, it's Starlet's words completely. She's an <laughs> those, are, those are good words. And, and the idea that Jesus was willing to embrace his own personal suffering, his own personal pain for a greater good, a sacrifice. Uh, it's one thing, the words come easy. It's easy to say that we are in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are the victims of racial prejudice in any form of injustice. It's another thing to be willing to suffer with them mm -hmm. and for them, for there to be a sacrificial way of living. And that's, that's an authentic portion of the Jesus worldview, in my opinion, uh, that he embraced that idea of suffering for a greater good. Yeah, in the book, in that particular section of uh, about suffering, you you lay it out beautifully, uh, but then you draw this conclusion that your experience is that Christians in America struggle with the grasp of the enormity of this ordeal that Jesus suffered. What are some barriers that are in place right now that we need to recognize that prevent us from identifying with that suffering? Well, I think that we are so privileged and blessed. Mm -hmm. um, and from the beginning of time, people who are privileged and blessed find it easy to construct a theology that says the world is as it is because it's the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't challenge structures. We think that, well, we have this incredible degree of blessing. You know, one of the things that's interested me as we've talked about the pandemic and as we've looked at the potential death totals that could have risen from this dreadful, horrible disease, it's caused me to look a little deeper and say, well, what are, how many people die every week of other causes? Mm -hmm. And I think that the thing that bothered me the most is through the past decade, a typical week on this planet, 60,000 children die of hunger-related issues. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, why have we not called that a pandemic? Mm-hmm. You know, over 3 million children a year in this world that their death can be attributed to the lack of nutrition. Mm. Um, so why is it that we are comfortable with our going to restaurants and throwing away as much food as we have and having so much? Why have we never really addressed that we need to be doing more to feed hungry children? Uh, we care about it. We say those words, but will we enter into the passion of Christ? Will we embrace some sacrifice on our own part to turn that around? It, it bothers me about myself. I'm not pointing the fingers at anyone about myself that I am as comfortable as I am in that over the past decade, 60,000, every week when I get up in the pulpit between sermons, maybe another 60,000 children died that week because they didn't have enough food. Mm. Uh, that's, that's a passion that the church needs to be more willing to embrace and to feel and to act on. Yeah, absolutely. And that's very, very well said. What a tragedy. And you're right. I mean, one of the things that this pandemic has uh, revealed has, has been in comparison to other deaths, other tragedies that are taking place on a, on a daily basis 
that we have just kind of ignored um, and just kind of let fall to the wayside as we continue living our lives of privilege. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And then this most recent situation with uh, the marches and the rallies and the cries for Black Lives Matter and racial justice, that is, I've never heard so many people talk about systemic racism in the last two weeks uh, than, I, I mean, than I've ever heard before. I mean, it's just been remarkable, people talking about the ingrained racism within our institutions and white privilege. Uh, it's just been a remarkable thing to see. I think that there is more than an observation anymore. People are really seeing the injustices yes. in the world. Part of my own call to ministry uh, can be traced to systemic racism. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a small, um, wonderful suburban little area outside of Atlanta, Gresham Park in Atlanta. And it was the place that I lived from being 10 months old all the way up to my graduation from high school as an 18 year old. But in back in 1973, as I was graduating, uh, that neighborhood was part of, of a neighborhood that was changing racially. And at the time I graduated, every house is up for sale and the white flight further out into the suburbs was taking place. And I can remember the day that we moved and we left my boyhood home and I realized that we were moving for one reason. And that was because of persons of color, black families moving into our neighborhood somehow made all of us, my family, other families believe that we needed to to move and, and move further out and live in a better place rather than being neighbors to our new neighbors who were moving in. I remember crying that day as an 18 year old Mm. and remember saying to my mother, something is wrong with our faith. Wow. Something is wrong with our Christian faith that we are leaving the home we love because persons of color are moving into the neighborhood. I think that put me on a quest in college to find faith at a deeper level. And it was that quest as I went to Georgia Tech, as I got a chance to work in an inner city ministry there, the Techwood Mission Center, it was just a quest to find a deeper level of authenticity of faith because I knew that no matter how much we love the Lord, if we were going to move because people of color were moving on our street, something was tragically wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, that really became a part of the journey that uh, near the end of my college led me feel, I, I want to go into the ministry uh, because I, I recognize that, that there's something wrong with the faith that people who love the Lord, love the church, uh, have a great level of piety and do wonderful things. will send missionaries all over the globe, yeah. but will move when a person of color moves on the street. Something wow. was fundamentally wrong about it. Wow. That was powerful right there. Wow. Thanks for that. Um, you know, I've got a final question for we do a wrap-up question. And the final question is, uh, at the end of the book, you talk about how the potential for Christians to fall uh, prey to worldviews that are inconsistent or even dismissive of the teachings of Jesus. I think that is absolutely true. And so what are some suggestions that you have for Jesus followers how can and I know they need to buy the book and read the book. Right there we go. <laughs> but uh, what maybe is one thing that you can give our audience to help them see the world 
through the eyes of Jesus more clearly? Well, one of the things that I do mention in the book is that I really believe that the invitation of Jesus was always, come follow me. Hmm. It wasn't like our evangelical invitations of, you know, agree to these propositional truths about Scripture and about Jesus, and through your assent to these truths, you're saved. Uh, For Jesus, salvation was a journey, and it was a process, and it began with that invitation, come follow me. I think we need to just sound that invitation Mm. uh, within our churches, to our communities, to say, there is nothing more exciting, nothing more wonderful than a life that's committed to following Jesus and to be well steeped in his, in his teaching, in seeing his example, understanding his vision of the kingdom of God. Uh, I think that this is what our churches need to be focused on. And my, my goal in writing this, Mitch, was an autumn. I wanted this to be a resource for the church. This is not a... Right. Uh, a scholarly type of work in any way. And it's actually, it's actually laid out that could be a Bible study because there's questions at the end of each uh, that's section. That's very intentional. Mm-hmm. That uh, as a pastor, I know that I've got folks that are looking for Sunday school classes, small group Bible studies. Uh, at times, our church has enjoyed everyone reading a book and then offering small groups to discuss it. I want this to engender discussion mm-hmm. about who we really see Jesus to be. Uh, do we really hear his voice? Do we really see the world as he sees it? And to me, that is the invitation to try to be the corrective to those who, who I think co-opt uh, the name Jesus and the message of Jesus for their own political gain and to advance their own views. I think a church that really comes home to desiring to follow Jesus authentically uh, and building communities that are Jesus-following communities I think it can make a positive difference, and I hope that the book can be a small piece of helping that. Excellent. Well, Jack, each and every week we ask one final question, and Autumn always has the pleasure of asking that question, and it has to do with our motto here at Good Faith Media. Yeah, so at Good Faith Media, our tagline is, there's more to tell. Uh, Can you tell us what your personal more to tell is? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think my personal more to tell is to communicate a passion for the the future of the church, because we hear so many pessimistic words about the church, and I've been blessed. I have spent my entire ministry career with one congregation uh, spanning four decades, and I sort of end the book on a very hopeful note where I just say, I've seen people over the course of the time that I've been their pastor who they really have learned to see the world like Jesus and they've lived it. And I just, rather than uh, some grand scheme, I just tell a story of a dear lady named Becky and, and what a wonderful job she did with her life here at Zebulon of seeing like Jesus saw things. So I have a great passion for what we experience in congregations I think we have a great hope and a great future, and it will be a better future if we stay focused on that idea of seeing with Jesus. I love that. Well, the author is Jack Glasgow at uh, Zebulon Baptist Church in Zebulon, North Carolina, and his new book is Seeing Jesus. You can pick up your copy at nurturingfaith.net today, so make certain you log on and purchase a copy. Jack, thanks again for being on the podcast today. We wish you well and the very best. 
Thank you, Autumn and Mitch. I appreciate it. For next time, make certain that you are living good faith.